And I think what's really important for people to understand is that this freedom thing, this get in your car and head out into the sunset or, or head off to the horizon, this isn't a car thing. It's a gas car thing. And it's something, it's the superpower that gasoline cars have. And if we want to move past gasoline cars, we have to accept that other technologies don't have that superpower. They have other superpowers. Hello, and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I'm Alex Roy, the feisty director of special operations at Argo AI, whom I never represent on this show. And I'm Kirsten Korosek, transportation editor at TechCrunch. And today we are going to talk about batteries and size of batteries, but that sounds super boring. Actually, what we're going to talk about is, I was going to make like a bad joke, but about size. size, Does size matter? Yeah, exactly. And then I decided that was terrible decision and I tried to end myself. So we are going to talk about Ed's column in the New York Times. Um, And the title of it is, you want an electric car with a 300 mile range. When was the last time you drove 300 miles? Two questions in a single, <laughs> violating every rule, but it's okay. It's not bad piece. Um, so I guess it covers better, a lot. But we're, we're also, also going to talk about that fun e-bike story, The Atlantic, which made David Zipper and Horace Dediu not want to get out of bed. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, so I think the theme of this is, you know, EVs, but specifically, I think we want to talk about American culture, infrastructure, um, and how EVs may or may not fit into that. And so it's a, it's a big topic that we're certainly not going to cover everything. But Ed, I want to hand it over to you and just give me the basic premise of when you sat down to write a, this column, what was your intent? And did you actually achieve that intent? Right. And, and can you do that in less than 20 minutes with breaks <laughs> to breathe? and opportunities for us to ask questions. I mean, I I was surprised that I was able to get like the general threat. I think I think there were some people that got the point that I was trying to make and it was a difficult one to get into 800 words uh or like like under 1000 words um because it is. It's big and it's complicated. And essentially what it is, it just sort of you know, we we feel I think a lot of people here in the US, especially people who own EVs um you know, kind of feel like we've got it figured out. Like we've got electrification figured out, right? Like the formula is you put 200, 300 miles of range in an EV and you put some fast charging on the freeways and an EV feels close enough to a gas car that it, it, it doesn't feel as a consumer, like it's that hard to adopt. And, and that, that just is what it is, right? Um, one effect of that is that EVs are really expensive and we've had this assumption that, you know, if we just kind of keep doing what we've been doing for the last over a decade now, that, that that will change, that EVs will get cheaper and the data does not bear that out. But more broadly, this entire strategy is is colliding in the process of colliding with battery scarcity and that essentially we cannot continue to scale EVs globally um, like, like the, the production and, and demand for EVs is scaling faster than the supply chain for batteries. And so essentially, you know, rather than solving range anxiety, we've just been throwing batteries at it. 
And there's some, some, some research in there that shows that the more range you give people, the more they want, and that like you're never going to solve this problem just by throwing more batteries at it. And that if we do, we're going to limit the amount of miles that we electrify. And so instead of trying to make EVs, the pitch, the, like the, the central pitch that I'm trying to make here is that instead of trying to make EVs like gas cars, um, you know, and, and the gas car super, superpower is road tripping. Like the power, the power density of the fuel, the, the speed of refueling. There's a lot of things that go into that. And, and that's its superpower. But the EV superpower is that you wake up every day with a full tank or a full battery, or you can. And so rather than waiting until we can solve the 5% use case, which is road tripping um, for, in every EV, right, that, that we, sh- we need to focus on the low-hanging fruit. What are the 90% of miles that you drive? How do we help people understand what their 90% use cases are, and then help find a, an array of small battery options that allows them to electrify those miles. And frankly, if people want to, you know, need to burn gas for the 5% of miles or less that they spend road tripping and stuff like that, that's fine. Whether they rent a gas car or a hybrid, whether they have a plug-in hybrid that burns gas on those road trips. So, so anyway, so that's, that's sort of broadly the, the argument that I was trying to put out there. Kirsten, do you want to weigh in or may I? You're rare in Alex. Go. Don't don't wait for Kirsten. Yeah, go so, for it. Go for it. 100,000% agree with Ed's premise and where he took this. There's only the number of people in this country who need an EV with more than 300 miles of range or even 300. Like, is, uh, you can count them on two hands and it's people who want to set cannonball electric vehicle records. Other than that, nobody needs that much range. And... Uh, uh, what is it? The average daily commute is something like uh, 20 miles. Is that right? So on average, Americans uh-huh. drive 40 miles a day. Um, um, 30 miles a day? 40, 40. 40 miles a 40. day total. And the average, like 95% of trips are under 30 miles. So I'll get a funny thing. So you know, I've got a Tesla. It's my third and I, I love it. Everyone knows that I do. Uh, and I charge it uh, from a wall socket, like the slowest method. And so uh, as per Tesla's uh, suggestion, I never charge past 90% because that degrades the battery faster. So in my basic general community around Miami, if I get in the car in the morning, it shows 321, 321 miles of range. When I get back home that night, it shows uh, like 296 or 295. And that's it. I'm using 20, 30 miles uh, on that car at most. And then it's charged overnight using the slowest method. So uh, I, I was thinking... And maybe, you know, the answer, Ed, what is the evolution of internal combustion car range? Uh, what is that? Because I, I'm thinking my dad's Cadillac in 77, he had a Fleetwood Broom. I think I'm thinking of that car, which had a colossal fuel tank, but terrible fuel efficiency. I think its range was something was under 300. And it was fine for him for 23 years. So uh, where are we now? What's the average range of an internal combustion car? And uh, when, did we, when did it pass 300? Do you know? See, but it's not. But but I think the point is, it's not just the range, right? It's the refueling time, right. and 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 people say like like you know Tesla fans will say anything about Tesla online, <laughs> right? And like people will say like, oh, this argument is dumb because you can get two hundred miles of range into your Tesla in like fifteen minutes. But like like I mean, tell us, Alex, like like. I don't doubt that that might be possible under certain circumstances, but like day to day, how how what is a fast quote unquote typical fast charging experience with Tesla, like which has the gold standard, right. Of, of fast charging. Like what, like what is actually realistic in terms of the, the refueling time or like recharging time? Well, you know, I, 
uh, I stopped using superchargers unless I'm on a road trip. So I don't even think about it anymore. Uh, partially because the cost has gone up a lot recently. It's still lower than gas. Um, and also at the times and where I want to go, the charge, the superchargers can get pretty busy. Um, you know, I, I think that I don't know if the recharging times matter really at all unless if you're not going on a road trip, which is why your argument is so compelling to me. So I could, for almost most of my driving, survive with a Model 3, even with a short-range Model 3. It'd be completely fine. And that's why it's so popular among ride-hail uh, ride drivers. Yeah, and I think one way to think about my about my argument that I didn't put in the in the piece really like explicitly, uh, there, there's just – Again, there's a lot to, to, to go in, into this. But I think a lot of people want the, the long-range EV. Like they're thinking, let's go all electric. Like we can, right? You can get an EV with this big battery and go all electric. And that is the best thing that we can do as, you know, environmentally, I think is what is what people are thinking. <laughs> and no, I'm serious. Like I, I do think that that's a thought pattern, right? They want, people want to be able to electrify. They want one vehicle that can electrify 100% of their driving miles. And like, I think that's a good impulse. And that's certainly how big battery EVs have been presented and, and sold to the public, the trade-off, right? And everything is trade-offs. And I think that's part of the problem that we have in, in processing some of this stuff is accepting that there's not just good things about it, like everything is trade-offs. And I think the trade-off that people aren't thinking about is that, well, yes, you know, from an immediate climate impact perspective, electrifying 100% of your miles is a good goal, right? That's, that's what we should be aspiring to. But if 95% of your miles are 40 miles or less, or, or your days of driving are 40 miles or less, or, or, or say 80 miles or less, but you have a 300 mile range, or let's say, let's say, you know, you, you don't come close to using hundred more than 150 miles of your range, but you have 300 miles of range. That extra 150 miles of range that they only use 5% of the time could be in an entirely separate vehicle, allowing another family to, to, to electrify their 90% use cases. That's what people aren't thinking about. And when we live in a, a battery constrained world where, where battery supplies are scarce and can't keep up with supply or with demand, that is a real trade off. And that's the trade off that people don't think about. Just as like when they buy a big truck, like they just don't think about the fact that they, they like the capability and they don't really care about the efficiency trade-off. Kirsten? <laughs> well, there's um, a number of elements within the column that I absolutely 100% agree on. And then there's some areas where I don't disagree. I just think that's more complicated. Mm -hmm. I, I think that for one, you're spot on that it's all gone to bigger batteries and as a result, more expensive premium vehicles. And we've sort of lost that whole, you know, reducing the cost of a vehicle and having this cheap EV, like that's gone. There isn't really any options in the United States that are what, 30,000, under $30,000. I mean, like I guess the yeah, the Chevy Bolt. And it's like not my favorite vehicle. So um, it, it's not it's not um, compelling enough of a vehicle for me to spend that type of money on, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I do think that that has – I think that the, the American like culture around cars and thinking and even like our historical ties to manifest destiny, it's like – so deeply embedded into our choices as consumers, but also almost impossible to change because a lack of 
other long distance options. Like we have made road tripping this American ideal, but also because there isn't another choice. Mm. If you want to go see the United States, you cannot, like you can in France, jump on a super fast train in Paris and get down to Bordeaux in a few hours. You just simply can't do that. And so we've um, sort of like idolized the car and the road trip and the experience and the freedom, but it's actually like there's not another choice. (laughs) So as a result of that, I think that we have this mindset about always being able to travel as far as possible and EVs have gotten sucked up into that psychology. Yeah. Um, so I, and I think there's- because of the ref- just one se- one yeah, last yeah, thing, yeah. because yeah. of the refueling piece, it isn't like yes, there was a time in um, in our history where there was a lack of um, refueling stations, gasoline stations, and fuel efficiency was bad. But that built up over a period of time. But refueling was always fairly quick process. Um, certainly quicker than it is now for EVs. So that's also part of the issue um, in terms of that, like needing this long range and the road trip thing. If there was charging at every single gas station in America, I, I believe it wouldn't be as much of a factor. People's, I, I think that if we actually had at every single gas station a uh, actual covered charging station, which by the way, no charging stations ever cover, very few are, um, and you knew that at every exit, like while you're on your road trip where it says gas food lodging and also has an EV charger, you could go there. I don't think it would completely solve the problem, but I think it would allow people to go for more 200 mile options. Um, but we're fighting against this deep seated American culture. Um, good. Yeah. Uh, it is the philosophy that of, Better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. And For it's sure. the most American, it's maybe the, one of the most core American values. Yes. Okay. So, so two things. So, so one, I think what we're talking about is the fact that cars, we've made cars our, our utility mobility device. Like we, it's our answer to every mobility question in this country is get in the car and go, right? doesn't matter if you're going one mile or a thousand miles. You just get in your car and go. And so, and so that fundamentally, you know, biases your purchasing choices to cover all of your range of, of things you might possibly do. So you're never optimizing. We've never in our entire relationship with the cars, basically hardly ever optimized how we think about buying cars for the, like maybe in the, in the 70s, right? With the, the fuel crisis and stuff. And, and you look at how the auto market evolved really dramatically in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. The rise of the Japanese, I mean, efficiency and quality all of a sudden. We went from chrome and like land yachts to like these little super efficient, super reliable, super high quality Japanese vehicles in the course of like 15, 20 years. And it was because we had to get serious about it. We couldn't indulge, you know, this sort of American, you know, mode of of relating to vehicles. So Um, that almost happened again, if you recall, in the very – like the – the first round of the clean tech cycle, which was uh, about 2007, 2008 ish, um, or a little bit before that, 
but then it kind of all came crashing down. But there was a lot of discussions about peak oil at that time. And I was writing a ton about oil and gas and and how this was going to lead to, it drove a lot of the hype and interest and innovation, by the way, into solar, into Mm -hmm. EV companies, most of which never actually like could survive. Tesla was one of the few ones. Um, But also around um, like, this idea that our whole world was going to change as a result. But innovation also allowed us to unlock natural gas and oil deposits here in the United States. And so as a result, those fears didn't really take hold. I mean, it basically like, so, so it just stretched the timeline out. Um, And there's other complicated reasons why too, like the price of oil and all those things like that. And like, um, but that what happened in the seventies didn't it like almost happened in 2008, 2009. And there's a lot that innovation around solar and EVs that did occur, Mm -hmm. but it didn't spur that kind of like massive push towards the efficient, uh, low mileage, cheap EV that didn't happen. All right. So what was the pushback to this story? Because Kirsten articulated like pretty much like the context of why the psychology persists, but you've gotten some hate for this. Why? Uh, well, I think I think most of it was people reacting to the headline or like or like not really reading the whole thing. Because I think I think you know, and and a lot of that is just sort of how how our public discourse works now, where people sort of say like, oh, okay, well, you know, the status quo is a certain way and maybe there are some bad things about it. And when people point out those bad things, there's sort of this implication that we're just going to replace this thing with something else that's going to be now forced on me. And I think that, that was something I tried to be really careful about in the piece was to not say, you know, we have to replace this one thing with this other one thing. And I think, I think this is right. Like that's actually the heart of the problem that that we're in right now that I was trying to identify in the piece was that we have made gas cars, our multi-purpose utility, like mobility device. And, and what we're trying to do is force electric battery, electric technology into that, that, you know, this, this new peg into that shape hole. Right. Um, so that we can continue, so that we can replace a monoculture with a monoculture, right? So we can't just go from this one do-it-all solution, don't think about it, just get in your car and take care of your mobility needs to to another one, right? And 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 I get that. Like that's it's hard. Like, and and I think what gas cars have done is allow us to not think about this stuff. And and I want to touch on the, the the whole national mythology thing that that Kirsten mentioned because I think it is a really important part of this. And people, you talk about this topic enough and people do go back to it. And, and I think, I think, you know, it's important to understand that we want to think of mythology as being sort of this thing where these deep truths from our past past sort of persist over time because they are so true, right? Like, like over time, you know, the, the core, fundamental truths of our reality get distilled into this mythology that tells us something real about ourselves. But the reality is, is that, is that, you know, I said, I studied political science, mythology mostly works the other way. <laughs> mythology mostly is us in the present telling ourselves or, or people at different points telling themselves 
stories about why they've ended up where they are that that help them sort of move forward, right? Rather than, right? So it's more um, about sort of justifying or rationalizing than it is about sort of understanding a, a deeper truth. And I think I think a lot of our frontier mythology, right? A lot of it in our era comes to hand, comes down to us from Western movies and and like media and stuff rather than historic reality. And the reality is, is that like, you know, we think of the American hero as an individual on the horse out in the open frontier. And the reality is, is that, you know, and, and we think of the bad guy, the, 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 the counterpoint to that figure uh, as being the big money Eastern interest who comes into town with the railroad and brings law and order, but also maybe corruption and, and power and, and, and constrains the freedom of the individual on his lone horse. And the question is, you know, do we see the one as the hero and the one as the villain because one was historically better than the other? Mm. <laughs> the guy on his, found his own out in the frontier of the horse did a lot of bad things. And guess what? Like this country would not be what it was without Eastern big money and, and railroads collective, you know, our ability to lay infrastructure that moves huge amounts of, of goods efficiently and to create cities and to develop, right? Like, like the railroads did much more to develop this country really than the individuals on horses certainly past a certain point. So, so again, so like the way we think about this in moral terms and in, in, in our mythology doesn't reflect like actual useful lessons from history. And I think my theory, as I've been thinking about this is that is that the, the gas car has been able to give us so much freedom that we are, we sort of, it, it helps us recast our history in that light, right? It's one of the things that allows us to think about things this way. And I think what's really important for people to understand is that this freedom thing, this get in your car and head out into the sunset or, or head off to the horizon, this isn't a car thing. It's a gas car thing. And mm. it's something, it's the superpower that gasoline cars have. And if we want to move past gasoline cars, we have to accept that other technologies don't have that superpower. They have other superpowers. And, and that's what we're dealing with here. And, and what, what we need to do this is sort of the core argument is not let the strengths and weaknesses of gas cars determine how we relate to new technologies. We need to accept that battery electric technology is what it is. And it's, and its superpower is that it's the perfect way to, to electrify your modern, I mean, your, your, your day-to-day, like regular miles. And I think for me, the example of this is Ford's e-transit van, right? That is not a vehicle that's made for consumers. That is a vehicle that is made for businesses, for deliveries. And as a result, Ford knows they have the analytics, right? That, that tells them what small business owners, how many miles they actually drive, right? Because there's no fantasy in business. It's just dollars and cents. And there's no point in buying more battery than you actually need. And guess what the range is on a 4D transit? It's like 160 miles, right? Mm -hmm. And it's because it's data-driven and it's not fantasy and mythology-driven. And as consumers, we're trapped in a fantasy. And the fantasy is that we can do what we've been doing since 2008 in terms of our, our government policy and our, 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 how we relate to this technology and that it's going to miraculously save things. And that's not – that's a fantasy. So speaking of fantasy-driven, uh, let's talk about this – story uh about e-bikes that ran was it the atlantic a couple of days yeah. ago but can i finish can i make one point though before we move on to the atlantic i think um, these are related issues but go ahead they, they are they are they're super related but um the one thing i do think two points one you and i actually disagree ed about like charging infrastructure um and 
for me, and if you want to, again, get into the American psychology here, um, it isn't just about charging, like having chargers everywhere. Um, it's about having chargers everywhere that can, you know, reliably will work. And that is to me a key difference between gas infrastructure, gas station infrastructure, and just the entire way EVs charging along, you know, the interstate are even maintained and operated. For instance, it is very rare, except for maybe at midnight at 24-hour gas stations, to not roll up in the middle of nowhere and not have people in a store or someone who can help you with if there's a problem. Whereas at Electrify America, for example, the one I use, it's behind this outlet malls. There's no cover. And so I live in the Southwest. So it is oftentimes like literally 110 degrees. And guess what goes out all the time? The, the card reader, the credit card reader, because it's so hot. And then you have to get back in your, or um, half of them won't be working for other reasons. And there's no one there to help you. So then you call a number and then you go through this whole troubleshooting thing. I don't think it's we're disagreeing not, about this though, Kirsten. Like, well, yeah, well, they, no, we've disagreed in the past about the need for like this, like vast charging infrastructure. And I think that you've said like, yes, that that's necessary, but that's not the root problem. Whereas I put more importance on charging infrastructure, I think, than you have in the past. You're, um, but you're talking about, you're talking about like long range trip enabling charging infrastructure. Correct. Well, actually all of it, because I'll even go around in Tucson here to find like even a level two and half of them aren't working. And so okay. I think that that really chips away at like, everyone talks about range anxiety. Honestly, to me, it's infrastructure anxiety because maybe I know where to go to get it now. But I don't know if it's going to work when I get it there. And so I'm worried that I won't then have another option. But Kirsten, the pro- this is a problem because we're telling people that you have to electrify road trips too. And that what, what I'm saying is the opposite. I'm saying forget the road trips. Burn gas on the road trips. Do it. Like, like burn gas on the road trips. It's such a tiny percentage of our miles. Who freaking cares? What we need to do is get charging in every person's home so that the 90 to 95% of their miles that can be – done with and 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 here's the key point and this gets to to the the piece that Alex wants to to talk about here right for a lot of people the 90 to 95% of their day-to-day basically commuting and errands i mean a commuting we can do a lot of work from home i don't commute because i work from home and like that solves a lot of miles that otherwise I'd have to make a lot right, of decisions but not everyone in america can do that I, I know that and what i'm saying is is that is that whether it's an you know an e-bike is the ideal because it uses the fewest batteries, um, whether it's a small range, a short range electric vehicle. And, and, and if you can only have one vehicle, I, I think the plug-in hybrid is the, is the one solution. Again, I, I think we need to move past the idea that we have to replace one car with one that does it all with one car that does it all. But if you have to stick with that paradigm, get a plug-in hybrid because uh, then you can burn gas on road trips. And, and you don't have to worry I have about to chime in here. Kirsten, do you feel you have to add to me right now or may I? Go. Uh, I have wondered for a long time what would happen to people who were early adopters of EVs and whether they would get a second one. And it seems like a lot of Tesla people do get a second one. 
because the ecosystem works for them unless they've had a really bad service experience. Uh, I, I've been on the ha happy side of that. Um, but I have recently encountered several people who bought, uh, one person bought a Tesla and then uh, replaced it with a hybrid. It was a, like a BMW X5 plug-in hybrid, which they for, which for them, the majority of their driving around town is electric. When they go on road trips, it's gas. But I've met a lot of people who were early on non-Tesla EVs are going back to pure gas or hybrids. And I think this is a – at one point, I thought this was dangerous for EV. But I think in recent recent events have shown that there is not – that the supply chain constraints around batteries are not going to improve dramatically or at all for some time. So maybe this plug-in hybrid solution is uh, like a blessing in disguise that is yet to be truly understood. And companies that have went, were too early and too far into like EVs will save the world should embrace that. Maybe Toyota was onto something. Um, I'm in 100% agreement that plug-in hybrids have been downplayed. They've been, you know, um, they haven't been prioritized. They are more, they're unfortunately more expensive. They're oftentimes more expensive than an EV and a gas vehicle. But I mean, I mean, they're less they're less subsidized, right? The subsidies incentivize right. bigger batteries, not smaller batteries, like that. And so that's I'm, when you we've been talking about an abstract argument. At some point, you know, this gets out into actual policy, right? So, so I have I've always been a big believer in plug-in hybrids. I have you know Ford used to talk about it as a bridge technology, and then seems to have like gone all in on EVs, and so is every other um, automaker. And they've ditched some really good cars. Like, quite honestly, the Chevy Volt with a V was a great vehicle because it was one of the first to actually have what I would call a real um, range. So anything that they had like 43 miles, which is perfect for a plug-in hybrid. The problem was that you had a lot of these like vehicles that had, I mean, I remember testing an Audi that had eight miles, which was the dumbest thing ever. If we actually had more options around plug-in hybrids, um, I think that that would be hugely um, important for people like me who might just want to own one car. Yeah, I think GM, and, and that's think the thing. I want to just own one vehicle. I don't. I mean, I technically have several because I have like some historics and stuff like that. But if if I just want to have one vehicle. Right now, we have the Subaru Outback because we do take a lot of road trips, actually. We're in a weird – we're skewed in a weird way, but a lot of it is weekend stuff. It goes everywhere. It has okay gas mileage. But if that was a plug-in hybrid, I would like continue to buy that car forevermore because it would then solve the city problem that we have, which is when we do drive it, we're driving around this like vehicle that – you know spews emissions and things like that. And it would be great if we had 40 miles of EV charge, then that would be perfect. That would be the perfect vehicle. Um, and so I'm a huge, I'm totally 100% on board on that. I do think that the one other argument when your column and that, and this actually is a good transition to e-bikes is that we don't talk enough about how this country is really like several countries in one in terms of experience and the type of vehicle you need. And so a lot of times it comes to the perspective of the urban dweller and for the urban dweller and the apartment dweller. Um, or actually, I think the predominant viewpoint is coming from the suburban person. 
um, because they have a garage and charging infrastructure. But the two areas that aren't talked about much are the rural communities and also urban needs. So urban needs, meaning you live in an apartment, you don't necessarily have a charger available. So that issue. And then on the rural side, like what does that work look like and how do people use their vehicles? Vehicles used in rural communities and just drive through the Midwest. If you know, if you want to see it for yourself, they're used as tools. They, there are literal tools that they are used for. And so it is a very different mindset than the suburban Tesla owner who has a garage. You can plug, you know, like it's just a totally different mindset. And so there has to, there can't just be one solution. Um, same goes with apartment dwellers. Like you have to, we have to be thinking about that in terms of infrastructure or working with property owners um, or apartment owners about putting that kind of charging infrastructure or offering vehicles that are cheaper, smaller, passive charging, you know, there's all these different solutions, but we're giving them one answer, which is, I think the heart of what Ed, your column is that we're, we're like presenting one solution as the answer to every question. And it just isn't. Yeah, that, that is absolutely. Now would be a good time to talk about that other column, which fascinated us, the e-bike column. Well, so this goes, falls into the same thing, which is, um, you know, I have mixed feelings about this column. So this is the column in the Atlantic. Um, and it was, um, called the e-bike is a monstrosity. And in part, in, in part of it, I agreed with, which is that, that it's not quite a bike and it's not quite a motorbike. And it has, it requires this new category and new category of thinking where this person completely lost me is how they started talking about like how they felt like a loser riding it. And like, I don't know, like they're getting into some psychological like things that maybe is true and maybe not, but kind of like was missing part of the point. <laughs> but I do think that, that the, the key central point that this writer did get was that it, it doesn't fit in one category or the other. And as a result, it is treated in a weird way and it is um, the safety aspect of it operating in urban environments in a bike lane is, could be slightly problematic, but in general, I am a huge fan of e-bikes and I see, and I, and I cycle a lot like a commuter bike and also for road bike for, for like exercise. But I see in my travels like this past summer, all these older people with e-bikes and like they're super popular around like our, let's say RV campsites and stuff like that. And I'm like, these are people who would never have been on a bike before. So to me, it's like a win. Um, if people don't like they, I, we talked to some people who weren't towing a vehicle behind their giant monstrosity of a RV. They had e-bikes with them instead now. So, those small movements are really key. And also I do think e-bikes can be really important for people who don't have accessibility to any vehicle. Um, if we can get the price point down a little bit. Uh, a good friend of ours who I think should remain nameless. Cause I don't think he wants to be quoted saying this said this article was clickbait contrarianism. And from the headline on down, it is, it's almost written like kind of like a, like a, 
Jalopnik year one or like uh, the guy who's part-time at Vice who wants traffic but doesn't want to advance the, the discussion. <laughs> because to say that e-bike is a monstrosity is not productive or informative or educational in any way at all. And it's just too bad. Uh, because if you come to Miami, uh, having a, having an e-bike is like a sign of success and coolness, uh, far more than a Vespa, uh, which he cites in the article um, yeah. for its Aperol spritz, you know, bona fides. You guys got it all wrong. Again, I think that that's this whole idea of looking, like cr- giving this very specific perspective. Almost, It almost felt like a suburban perspective. Like, I don't know where this person lives, but it it just didn't match up with like certainly what I see, um, which is an anecdotal, you know, of course, and fully subjective, but like what I observe in all my travels is very different. Um, and you know, I'll tell you what, before e-bikes were a thing in areas of like kind of more pronounced poverty, a very popular thing was that people would put these gas little motors on bikes because they didn't have cars. Uh, they were everywhere around Tucson and now I'm seeing more motorized or um, electric motorized ones that people are using. And it's like, there's, there's so many different categories for e-bikes that are, one is the stylish, expensive, like status symbol. And one is just like using it as a utilitarian tool. And then the third category, which is interesting to me is I'm seeing a lot of older people use these recreationally. Who never wanted to, who were like scared to be on a bike, but now they'll go on an e-bike, which is kind of an interesting thing. So I did think the column like kind of missed the mark in a lot of areas, except for that. I do think that it is worth acknowledging that it does exist in its own category um, and that there is a bit of a weird safety issue right now with e-bikes on like pedestrian paths. But I do think that that's solvable and like not, not like worth shutting down e-bikes certainly. And with Ed? that, do I, do I get to have a take? Or? Yeah. Oh, well you um, always talk, so it's fine. <laughs> what is your perspective, Ed? Oh no. I mean, I just, I, I was not super familiar with, with the author. Um, it looks like this person spent a lot of time going to universities in the LA area, uh, then was in the Atlanta area and is now in the St. Louis, Missouri area. And I think that those three cities uh, if those are the, the main three cities that you spent the last 20, 30 years at, um, or, or 20 years, something like that. Um, you know, I think that, that makes this perspective a little more understandable. Those are very car centric cities. Um, but I, but look, I, I said on Twitter that I don't hate the take. Um, it doesn't mean I, I don't think it's, it's, it doesn't mean I think it's good. Um, I look, I, I think, I think what frustrated me about like the discourse around the, the piece was that was that there was a, a some some real issues in there it, they weren't articulated well or presented well and it was there was a lot of it was hard to separate you know the the legitimate critique from the sort of psychological projection or or whatever like else was going on in that piece but i think like fundamentally it's frustrating that when if if you like e-bikes and someone writes a piece like this like the instinct to be like this guy's stupid i i get it i understand it but I think like if you're a fan of something and you want to see it more broadly adopted, you should take people's weird criticisms of it seriously, even even if they are psychological, right? Like, I mean, we've just been talking about cars and like how prominently 
like just psychology and mythology like plays in our individual decisions and just how we think about this whole thing. So of course that's the case with e-bikes as well as cars. And I think like for me, what what the the what I got a value out of it was was sort of something I've thought about before, um, which is that like motorcycles and bicycles both have this thing in the US where they're cool as recreational activities, but very uncool and and déclassé or whatever as as like practical mobility devices. Um, I mean, like if you use a motorcycle as a practical mobility device, it can, that can be cool. Like if you're this like you know hard charging single guy likes a lane split. Whatever. Like there there is there are ways to make that kind of cool, but like fundamentally, two wheeled commuting or whatever, whether it's a bicycle or, or a motorcycle or whatever, like it, it is a sort of like, you can't afford a car thing and you would prefer to have a car for safety reasons or weather protection or comfort or, or whatever else. Right. And, and so, or or you're like some weird, like environmentalist hippie, if you choose to only ride a bike, like we got so much, not flack, but like kind of interesting looks when we would tell people like we made a choice along, you know, a decade ago to only own one car. Now, recently we have more, but for 10 years we had one car and um, my husband, you know, commuted to work on his bicycle and, you know, I would use the bike oftentimes to go to the coffee shop or whatever. And we would trade off. And it was like, we always got these like, Oh, Hmm, that seems so suspicious. And it's like, well, it was just a choice, but you're right in that motorcycles and bikes, unless it's used recreationally, are seen. And, and even within those communities, by the way, I see this in the cycling community where road cyclists who are out there are very anti e-bike because they're like, oh, they're lazy. And I'm like, yes, say- you have, but you have two brand new cars sitting in your garage. So the you're guy- going out there recreationally. How wonderful for you. But like, let's not forget that there are other people who use these tools in different ways and they may not have two cars or even a car. Right. And and so if this guy had, had, had spent the last 20 years in Portland, right, his critique would probably be like, yeah, e-bikes are for posers, like real, like people are committed to the environment, don't need batteries on their bikes, right? Because that's kind of the vibe here, even though, you know, you do see more and more like families taking their kids to school on cargo e-bikes and things like that, that, that show like these are more of a car alternative. And look, like fundamentally, I would be fine with all the e-bike supporters being like, you know, oh, this is, this is a garbage opinion and we should just mock it and, and ignore it or, or not look for it. If, if, if those supporters felt like e-bikes were living up to their potential, but I don't see how they can. Like, I think if you own an e-bike, you know, like this is something that can really, like people are not appreciating. There's no, there's nothing out there in the public discourse that, that to me compellingly explains to people the actual value of an e-bike in a way that just living with one for a month does. And, and so until we've solved that problem, like until we, until those of us who think this is a cool thing feel like, this cool thing is being represented in a way that really like publicly in, in public discourse in a way that, that really reflects how cool it is. Like we should, we should want to know what people's weird hangups about it are. We should be curious about that so we can understand like how, how is the communication about this falling flat? And like, this is something that, you know, in the AV space hasn't happened a lot. And like, you know, I've, it, it's been a really fascinating and rewarding thing for me to have the opportunity to go into that and, and think about like, okay, we're saying all this stuff about AVs and, and driving automation technology, but like, what are people hearing and, and and how are they processing it? Because they're two different things. You can't just say things and assume that people 
will just get it. They're coming, they're hearing things from their perspective. And and so so you do, if you do support things, you do have to listen to these voices, even when they're irrational and and seem kind of dumb and whiny. There's oftentimes like actual insight there. And I think there was some in this for me. Yeah. So I think I think that you're on some onto something there, which is that it's very easy if to come from a, an elitist, like, I can't believe this person doesn't even get it perspective and completely miss actually a bigger thing. And and not to get political, but like this is what happened leading up to the presidential election in 2016 is that a lot of people discounted um, people as dumb and not knowing things. And guess what? They were surprised by a result. So it's always smart to go, okay, what is here? What is the root here? And I think e-bikes are so new that unfortunately they are kind of, to me, cast as this like um, kind of cool hipster thing that like parents who are environmentalists and spend a lot of money, like can throw their kids on the cargo bike and whatever. But they're, but that's not it. That's not the only group of people who are using these. And the more common they become and actually the more efforts um, by community groups to get them into areas where people might not have access to vehicles. And also, again, city infrastructure Tucson, we're super lucky. We have a non-motorized bike path that literally goes around the entire city. Um, And there are e-bikes on them. So it's like, if all those things come together, then you start to see like how this can be used, but we're super early stage. So to discount someone's like, you know, issues with it while a little bit silly and a little bit clickbaity, there is something in there. I think that is worth kind of, you know, it's funny. Have you all seen the movie, uh, Luca, the, uh, animated movie, Luca? Oh yes. You, Oh, you have seen Luca Kirsten. Is that right? Well, um, I have watched it because I, you know, I'm surrounded by, you know, nieces and nephews. So yes, I'm up to speed on Pixar and Disney movies. So what's really wonderful about Luca is that, uh, the mermaid kid from the ocean who wants to live on land and yada yada um, is that the the uh, antagonist, the coolest kid in town, is Senor Vespa, and he's the one who has a Vespa and is a Vespa race through this old Italian town. And I, I, I guess e-bikes haven't had their day in the media, um, but they're probably only one or two pop culture references away from maybe breaking free from this like the muck of this discussion. Uh, you know, the people forget the Roomba. The iRobot languished for years and wasn't doing great and uh, went through many, many, many product dis- uh, discussions and many different products and didn't hit it until the Roomba was featured in a music video uh, in a mansion cruising past. I, I don't even know how many years ago it was. And that one music video is what was the um, the moment that launched Roomba into becoming the most popular consumer robot in the world today. So what you're, what you're saying is that we need just one um, chase scene in the next mission impossible movie with an e-bike. It could be. And you know, something e-bikes people forget like Tesla's years ago, I wrote a column years ago that if you wanted to go to Pebble beach and steal expensive vintage cars, the best way to do it was to get a Tesla with a, with a trailer (laughs) cruise right up to the houses that collectors uh, are staying in and put their car in a trailer with a Tesla and quietly just slink away. Um, there's there's a, probably an amazing bank heist escape with a fleet of like Super 73 e-bikes, after which 
everybody's going to want one. And um, I, I guess I probably won't get paid for that idea. Uh, guys, we are coming up on 48 minutes. Yeah, I, I think just to to kind of put a wrap a lot of the things we've been talking about up. I mean, I think one of the things that came through in, in this e-bike thing was he he clearly bought a specific e-bike and like he described, you know, some of its shortcomings and like not all e-bikes have that those shortcomings. Right. And and I think part of the problem with that column was he was talking about e-bikes writ large based on his experience with a specific e-bike. And the reality is, is like there's a huge difference between, uh, you know, a cheap little, you know, hub drive kit that you convert an existing bike to versus a rad power bike versus a full blown cargo e-bike versus, you know, something like a, a super 73 versus something like the Onyx, you know, RCR, which is this like super cool retro, practically a motorcycle thing. And so, you know, e-bikes are a lot of things and some of the criticism we had were valid for some of them and, and not for other whatever. And, but there's a lot more complexity there in the same way that like, we have to stop thinking about cars as one singular thing. Right. And that, and that now we're entering a world where that, you know, has a lot more complexity to it as we think about, right? Like, do I want a small, you know, short range EV commuter for my around town trips? Do I need one car where I have a little bit of EV range and and a gas, you know, for the long trips? Do I want a long range, right? Like we're entering a time, we, we've gotten very used to making simple choices about mobility, whether it's a car or, or whatever else. And like, we are entering a time where technology is not just enabling, but kind of in some way forces us to be more intentional and and better educated about this stuff. And I think that like that's the first step of all of these things is just understanding what your needs are, understanding the diversity of options out there, and and becoming more intentional about how we consume mobility. Because I think if we do that, you know, we will a lot of this stuff will will end up being less complicated than it than it has to be in sort of like a New York Times op-ed. Are you suggesting that we use our critical thinking skills to educate ourselves and to work through problems? Because it would be so much easier just to write a clickbaity column and headline. When you put it that way, we're, we're all <laughs> fucked, aren't we? Exactly. And on that, and on that note. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Atonicast. Cast.